Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm standing there and there's Bowie on one side and Michael Hutchins on the other. And I remember like standing and we're all kind of, you know, they were talking and I'm standing and I'm like, this is crazy. I'm like, this can't be happening. Hello and welcome to The World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world. By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative. My name is Shona Abianka and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today. I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and director of the festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. Gail Ann Dorsey was born in Philadelphia in the US and acquired her first bass guitar aged 14. After an early stint at film school, where she was the only woman in her first year classes, she dedicated herself full-time to her career in music. She has recorded and toured as a session musician with the great and the good of the music industry, including Tears for Fears, Boy George, Lenny Kravitz, The National, Annie DeFranco, Brian Ferry, Gang of Four, and perhaps the most famous one, David Bowie. She sang and played bass in his band from 1995 to Bowie's death in 2016. Gail Ann has also recorded as, as a solo artist, releasing three critically acclaimed albums, the most recent of which is titled I Used to Be. She now lives in New York, where she joins us from today. Hello, Gail, and welcome to The World As It Should Be. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, thank you for coming. <laughs> so we know you're currently in New York, Gail, but is there anywhere else right now you'd rather be? Oh, I'd rather be in Paris. My partner is in Paris. In fact, I'm going, I'll be leaving a week from today, actually. Wouldn't we all rather be in Paris? I mean, it's not a, it's kind of not an ideal time to be gonna anywhere at this point (laughs) but um uh, it'll be much nicer to be with the person I love so it'll be a little easier how long are you going to be in Paris for I should be there for uh, I'm going to try and stay for a good three months or so maybe four springtime in Paris springtime I know very romantic yes yes indeed so I'm going to actually cut the romance now because we're going to talk about the first thing that you would change and it's the elimination of weapons, um, yes. getting rid of the ones we had. Not to say there wouldn't be disputes between people, you say, but we can find other ways to get our point across with our bare hands. Gun thing is insane. I'm talk- I mean, I guess you're talking about the US. Yes. Um, and you grew up in Philadelphia. So mm-hmm. what have you noticed about, you know, you spent so much time in London. So what have you really noticed about the differences? Well, I when I first went to London, I thought it was so fantastic that the the, the police didn't carry guns, that you weren't looking mm. at guns on, on the sides of people's bodies <laughs> as they mm. walked around. You know, I mean, there are a lot of places in the world, airports and places that have a lot of weapons. But I was just thinking in general, you know, um, I was asked to do this program and then to think of things. And, and uh, you know, I always thought that it's the, the, the murder thing here in the U.S. in particularly is just in, insane to just think that people can carry guns around and just, you know, yeah. do what they do with them. And and it was, um, you know, I was thinking about this before, uh, like a few weeks ago when I was asked to do this, this program. And then I guess it was two weeks already now that we had two mass shootings in one week, which was kind of ironic because I had thought about this before this happened. Obviously, there are a lot of shootings that happen in the United States and everywhere in the world and wars and at all times. But um, we had these two horrible, horrific um, murder mass shootings in the U.S. just recently. So it was then fresh on my mind again. And I just thought, you know, it's just too easy you know, in, in, to me, in, in an ideal world, it would be great if we could somehow eliminate the weapons that exist <laughs> and start again in a new way of trying to find a, a way of, you know, airing our disputes and our differences of opinion, um, our irrational anger. The thing, I mean, you know, people are always going to be confrontational and, and other animals are <clears throat> are as well. I mean, they fight, you know, it's just kind of seems to be in the nature of living creatures 
Yeah. But I just feel like the whole thing with guns and um, the glorification of it and the whole the idea that how easy it is to, to pick up a gun and, 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 and acquire a gun, it seems. I mean, I've never owned one. Uh, I don't think I ever will, but uh, it just seems so easy to be able to do that. And, and I think in, a, in, a yeah. good, in an ideal world, you, it wouldn't be that easy. <laughs> do you think there would ever be a successful gun amnesty? I don't think there ever will be in the United States. I mean, even if they were able to to ban um, these big assault, like they have these machine guns and things that people use in, in, in wars and even in, in, in armies, you know, to, I don't think they're ever going to not have weapons, but it would be nice to, 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 to at least make the law because there's no way you can take them back. Even if, if there was a law that you couldn't get them, people would get them. I mean, they always do. <laughs> there's always someone who can supply what you need it's interesting from our perspective over here and and mm-hmm. obviously there are so many problems here that we that, that mirror what's going on in the u.s but but mm-hmm. guns is not what is not quite one of them right now thankfully no, but, no so it's hard to understand the kind of the weddedness that americans have to to guns this idea of like the right to bear arms mm-hmm. and stuff like that yes. and and the fact you're right like i think there's a really bonkers stat that like there are three times as many guns as people in the US, you know, and so yeah. they they accumulate, don't they? You know, they, they never, and, and they never go anywhere. It's bec- it's a sport. It's a collection. I mean, p- some people have more than one they have rifles. Yeah. And, I mean, I know people are hunting. I, I, I would even go as far as to say if people who want to go and hunt, you know, for deer or whatever, how, how did they do it before they had guns? Let's do it that way. See how yeah. many deer you will be killing and eating. Yeah. So do you feel in the US, do you feel that there's any sort of pressure? Like here we call it keeping up with the Joneses. Like if somebody in your neighborhood has something, you want it. Do oh, you yeah. know any friends of yours who own guns? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think my brother even has a gun. He's, ex, he's an ex-Marine, my brother. Um, I'm sure he probably has a gun. <laughs> I haven't asked. I don't, I don't usually want to know. If someone yeah. has don't ask, don't tell. They, they, have, they have a strange kind of karma to me. Like the irony is, like I remember as a kid, I think they're quite amazing machines, like like things that someone could make a gun, like the idea of constructing that. And actually just, I have, I have, I will admit, I was curious. I wanted to shoot a gun. I've always wanted to see what it feels like, just out of curiosity. And I think it was in 2006, 2006 or seven, I was on the, on tour with Gwen Stefani and we were playing in Hawaii on Honolulu. And we had a day off or a couple of days off and I was wandering around the streets and there was a gun place. Like there was someone on the co- on the street was handing out a flyer for 60 bucks. You can shoot two, 10 guns, you know, come oh upstairs. Like one of those wow. shooting ranges where people go to, to, you know, so if you'd never, you know, just to see, and I thought, okay, now's my chance. So I gave, I gave the guy my 60 bucks. I went upstairs. They, they fitted me out with the, the, the head things, uh, the, uh, headphones so because it's loud mm. um they put a little apron on me because they said sometimes when you're shooting um the shells fly back on you and they could hit your skin your head on shorts it was hawaii what are they like you could burn you <laughs> Goodness. um and you know all these goggles the whole thing and you it's like on television you stand in these each little individual there's other people there there's like 10 other people in in their little slot next to you the guy comes out I had 10 guns that I could try, starting with a, a little rifle and going up to like the, the, the Clint Eastwood make my day, whatever, that, the big <laughs> double barrel, like, you know, Colt 45 or what, I'm not sure what it was called. And I mean, I always thought they, the, the, the gun itself is an incredible piece of work, like mm. the machine, that they're quite pretty mm. in some ways. And I can see the allure to you know, the metal and it's kind of cold and it's shiny and it's like, it's all, the, it's all that. But I, I, and I just wanted to see what that felt like. Well, I've never done it again. And I did shoot, like I got up to about eight guns and they were so heavy mm-hmm. and the, the, the feeling of the tension in my body, like shooting these things, shooting at a, you know, a target, a paper target, which mm-hmm. I actually kept, I have it. I, I, I have, I still have the target. How did you do? I did, I did pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Bullseye with, a, with a, what they call the, the police gun, which they call a nine millimeter, the one right, with yeah. the square cartridge that goes in this. I hit the bullseye with that on the first shot. 
Wow. And how did you feel when you were firing I the gun? Felt, was it what you expected? I felt the first thing I thought was, this is another reason why I'm uh, bringing this up for this topic was like, wh- their fire comes out of these things when you shoot them. Like, I, it, it's not like, on t- well, I mean, I don't know what it's like on TV. It's not a real gun, I guess, but I'd never really been in proximity of a, of a gun ever, thankfully. Like I might've heard gunshots, but I've never been, you know, I've never been anywhere where I've actually seen anyone or anything get shot. And I was, that scared the shit out of me. I'm sorry, I hope I can say. I, I, and, I, and I felt, um, the first thought was that I almost was in tears. I thought, how could anyone point this at a living thing? Well, what you've just described about walking, like it's so unthinkable to a British person that you could mm-hmm. walk down a street and, and be flyered for for like a, a gun shooting range, like you would to, for yeah. pizza. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, yeah, exactly. It was a guy like, these like weapons. a sandwich board, you know, type thing, That's a little crazy. flyer, 10% off, you know, come and try try some guns at the shooting range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, to get you people to want to buy guns, I'm sure it's probably, I didn't even think of it at the time, but it's probably sponsored by the NRA or some... Mm-hmm. Right, who would get you? But they had there were people in there that were shooting machine guns, and they had oh my god, and and when the person gives you the gun, you get a round in each gun. They have they have a safety um, chain that's like a a big metal chain that's attached to the to the to the wall in front of you, like below you, and they can lock each gun onto this before you pick it before they hand it to you. Okay. So they oh take God. it out of a box, they lock it onto the chain, and then they. So you ha- the the weight of these guns mm. unbelievable as well. Very so that's heavy. to stop people running off with it. That's to stop people run- and also to stop you being able to pull it away from the window oh. and shoot in the space or shoot the person next to you or like it has a it has a you can only kind of point straight ahead with these guns at your target. Target. So it's kind of like a leash on it <laughs> yeah. that won't go too far. But it's very, it's very secure. There's no way you can pull it out. And um, it was that added to the weight of the guns. Right. And I remember the next day, I was kind of, so, I was very sorry. I, you know, I said to Gwen, I had gone to the shooting range. I had never shot a gun before, and I'll never do it again because that really, it did mm-hmm. scare me out of me. Um, but now I know what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, oh, what did and, she say? She said she was like, "Wow, crazy! That's crazy!" You know, whatever. You know, I don't know if she had an opinion about it at all. But I was very sore the next day. Like my the tension in my body from like the recall, the recoil. Right. It's called yeah. it was really, really strong. Well, I guess you're using muscles you don't use. Exactly, and I was I was kind of paralyzed. I was kind of kind of screwed up for the gig the next day. <laughs> I was really in pain. I was like, oh my God. So, do you feel any safer in the U.S. with the police carrying guns? Does it make any no, difference? No, no, I feel less safe. Mm. Yeah, I would prefer that they could deal with it in another way. And then sometimes I'm surprised, especially here in the U.S. Now we've got all this horrible stuff with the police and the racial thing, and it's just like everything is just ever since Donald Trump, it just got mm. really escalated but also you know i'm in some ways growing up as a black person in the united states i'm kind of not it's not surprising it's not you know that suddenly it's this awareness of things but it's like that's been like that ever since i've been alive that i can remember living in this country there's always been racism it's just kind of got covered up and i feel like some when donald trump got into office he just kind of turned over a rock and you know you, you know how you have a rock yeah. and there's things living under it and you turn it over and they're not gonna you can't ever put it back mm-hmm. you know and it, it, and it just all crawled out it was always there do you feel and, hopeful now that things are changing? i do i do i feel hopeful for younger people for the, the yeah. next generation because if i didn't have that hope i'd have no hope for humanity at all ever yeah at this point, looking at the state of the world and, and the way grown-ups are behaving all over the world, not just here, but governments and, you know, different groups and beliefs of, like, just just so much anger and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, unacceptance of, of, of anyone else other than your own opinions or whatever. But um, I, I think young people, uh, I feel like it's going to be their world, obviously. That's how it works. And they, I feel like the younger people are just kind of the atmosphere that's that's been created with with um, access. I get, you know, even though I'm not a huge fan of the internet, I have to admit, but mm-hmm. the access to to information and how it's just so much more 
uh, young people just seem so much cooler in that sense. They, they are they are the ones that are, or so it seems, you know, speaking up and, and telling grown-ups, hey, it's not cool yeah. to be racist or it's not cool to do that or that's, you know, that's bullshit. Or, and youth has always done that, really. Mm. But yeah. I think now they really have to step up to the plate more than ever before. they got to make sure that, that their world is better because, you know, it's it's going to be them. They'll be the next presidents, and they'll be the next prime ministers, and the next senators, and and, and whatnot. And so they and I and I feel like the young voices that I can see anyway in the U.S. I haven't been that up on international politics lately, but because there's been so much going on here, I'm just like my my brain is exploding. But um, I feel like you know when you when I see the younger people that in our Congress and our Senate, who the, the new people that have been elected, um, African American people and Jewish people, you know, that's it's so promising, and they are speaking like you know, like human beings. They're speaking like people with a heart who are connected to like the world, not connected to money or power or any of that. They're they're connected to being alive. Mm. And that's that's good to see. Like I'm happy when I when I see that they're you know there's some of the younger people that are getting in, and especially into government positions here in the U.S. Anyway, are, are, are you know speaking what I feel is is truth. They're just you know, speaking to reality. Yeah, and that brings us seamlessly on to your second uh, item for changing the world to make it as it should be, which is um, which is about education, um, mm-hmm. obviously, and feeding into young people's growing minds. Um, and so, you would like to make art something that's more important in the education system. So it takes. I would. Yeah, do you want to talk us through that? Well, I just feel like the the creative process um, is is essential to human beings, like to like to to nurture our imaginations. Um, and, and especially, you know, art anyway, I'm, I'm not in the school system anymore, so I, I can't really speak to specifics and, and, and maybe I might be speaking out of turn, but I do know that, um, that most things, most art or creative programs, especially in the U S in the school systems are the first things to get cut. The first mm-hmm. things to, to, to be to say, oh well, that's that's an extracurriculum activity. It's not it's not part of the, the 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 real what's important. And I think that art and music um, and other form, you know, engineering. It doesn't have to be like the fine arts. It can be, you know, the process of of creativity and 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 allowing a space and a curriculum and um, a conversation, whatever, about being able to to use your imagination to create things, mm. um, not just to learn things, but to, 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 to create and you're not like to give you that freedom. And I think it's, it's just as important as learning to read and write to me or to learn how to multiply or count mm. or yeah. other, other, other things. And I think it should always be at that level. It's like math, science, music, painting, yeah. you know, like it, they, to me, they should all be, because I feel like, that's the kind of release in in the world mm. that we always, you know, we go to it as entertainment or whatever. But it's it's it's, you know, I, I speak because I'm an artist, I'm a musician. I I I, I speak from a point of knowing that for me, without having had opportunities. Or, uh, which I did have when I was young, regardless of being born in Philly in a black neighborhood or schools that weren't so good, we still had music. We did have music when I was a kid. We had art, we had painting, we had drawing. And without those things, I, I, I don't know that I could really honestly exist in the world. I was going to ask you how supported you felt when you were growing up in the education system, veering okay. towards the arts. I felt very supported. And then until it's interesting because it got to a point, you know, when I was in elementary school, I, I took clarinet lessons. They, they had a band. I know that schools still have bands and things for the football and whatnot. And, but it was like, it was, you know, it was, I had music teachers. We learned, we had little singing groups. We had choir. We had a lot of things that were, I looked forward to. And I felt like, doing those things made it worth coming to school and then the rest of it made all the rest of it easy it was like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down yeah. it was like, I it, you know and I think a lot of kids if they had that exposure it would help them with the other things that are maybe not so interesting to them or 
you know, the things that, that seem like more necessities rather, rather than fun. But I felt very supported. And then I got to a point where I really was expanding, like, creatively. Like, I wanted to make films. That's why I went to film school. I got interested in, in making films, and I got interested in painting. And, like, uh, you know, music led to all of those things. I, I wanted to write more. There was a time I wanted to just be a writer. You know, but there, I did get to a level in high school at that point. Um, which is like the last sort of, you know, three years of my um, traditional education, um, where the schools in my neighborhood were very limited with what they had. Mm -hmm. I ended up going, I ended up having, giving a false address. I can tell this now because it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to catch you now. Yeah, they're not going to take my high school diploma back now. They do, who gives a shit? (laughs) But I had I used a false address because I had I had a, a family family mem- like a, a friend of the family who worked in the suburbs of Philadelphia in a, in a city called Radnor. That's why that's why I ended up going to Radnor High School, which in the in the late seventies apparently was like one of the top five high schools in the country. It's, it was the kids of the sons and daughters of you know the CEO of Xerox and you know kids oh. come to school mm. in a Porsche and you know and I was I was sneaking in from the railroad tracks you know um, every day <laughs> going to school waking up at five o'clock in the morning to get a train into Radnor and then kind of sneaking across the lawns and you know making up stories why I'm not on the school bus and I did that for three years That's in amazing. all kinds of wow. weather because they had. They had a whole TV studio with real like cameras that rolled around like on TV. They had they had an audio visual department, which is where I started getting my film chops together. They had a theater uh, company. I I got to do some acting. They had an incredible art uh, studio there. You know, I mean, they had all these things that the inner city schools did not have. Was there a specific teacher at this school that inspired you? Uh, well. Yeah, my English teacher. I know I can see her face now, and I don't know why I can't uh, think of her name. I'd have to look in my high school yearbook. Desenzo. I think her name was Janet Desenzo or something like that. I loved my English teacher. Mm. I loved writing. Uh, I, I don't read enough. I do like to read, but I don't. I, I find that I spend more time kind of fiddling around with instruments more than I do, you know, if I have any spare time, <laughs> than reading. But I loved I loved writing and I and I used to get creative writing awards and stuff in school for my little essays or whatever they po- poems or whatever we used to write. And did your parents uh, encourage all this? Did they? Yes, my mother. Well, my uh, my father passed away when I was six, so I was kind of raised with just my mom and I and I was the youngest of five kids and I was the surprise baby. <laughs> the surprise. surprise. Uh, my mother would like to call it the surprise. I say the mistake, but she says, <laughs> she says no, no, you were the surprise. <laughs> God rest her soul. But um she yeah, so it was my siblings were all a little older than me and they were all pretty much out of the house by the time I was about nine or ten. So my last sort of years were just me and my mom. And my mother was uh, you know, born in Virginia in 1921. So you can only imagine what mm-hmm. she experienced. Um, a lot of things that she never even wanted to share with me. So I don't even know, but I can imagine. Yeah. Um, not very nice things. But she, um, she, you know, so she came from a place where you just, you know, you work, you, you live, you survive, you work, you, you know, you have kids, whatever, and then you die. You know, it's like a, mm-hmm. she didn't have, she wasn't ambitious. She didn't do any, she was a housewife or whatever you call it, a homemaker. But she was a great mother, and she didn't understand what I was doing, um, but or what I was interested in, like why I was the creative child, and I was like always making up, you know, things and wanting instruments and all that. But she, you know, with her voice, she would say, uh, you know, why aren't you like the other kids, or why don't you go out and play, or why are you always in your room, or why, you know? But then I would say, I need. I need some extra money to get guitar strings or I need, you know, I need a new typewriter or I need some, some cartridges for my super eight camera. And she would go and we were living on social security at the mm-hmm. time. She would go and ask a neighbor who cleaned houses mm-hmm. in the places where I went to high school. 
and get a little extra job, you know, doing, you know, serving some somebody's uh, dinner or whatever and <clears throat> and get what I needed. And so there was something inside of her that believed, that understood, but, mm. but then there was also the rational mind of like, well, how can this be possible? How can a little black girl dream that she's ever going to do these things that I used to dream I would do? So she didn't understand it, but at the same time, I feel like she had this, this whether it was instinctive or just, I don't know, just a mother's own a mother's love or mm. for their kids. She just, she never denied me things that, that I needed if she could, cause she, if she could help it. So, and then the, the greatest blessing of all was her being able to, to, you know, come to every single concert I ever went to Philadelphia in my whole life, oh, Gang of Four to yeah. Stefani to Bowie to the, you know, to Sophie B. Hawkins to, you know, to the shittiest little dives I played when I was a teenager. She never missed a show. Even, so even though she never liked some of the music, you know, mm. she didn't care. So I knew that she was proud of me, like that I, I had, I had, it was worth all the agony of having a, a different child. <laughs> a did trouble. you get any, did you get any sense of what she would have wanted to do had she had the freedom? Interesting. In, uh, I, no, not really. That's a very mm. good question. I mean, she was happy. She was a very um, positive person, my mom. I know that was great. She And she was not racist or anything at all. You know, it was always the irony of Philadelphia um, and the school systems as well were very, so segregated. It was like, you know, you lived, you lived in one neighborhood and if you went into the other neighborhood, you could be beat up or killed or whatever, called names. or And so it was very, you know, but it usually was the other it's always it's the other way around you know, it's like the white neighborhoods would say okay you, you know you can you come into our neighborhood we're gonna you know we're gonna stick it to you and they would they had many, many encounters but the opposite was never true and that's what is a it's a it's a real myth the black communities are very opening open and welcoming and when i had my white friends from my high school who who knew where I was coming from, who, and they were all musicians. They were all the creative people that I, that I met who are still friends to this day. They, um, you know, they would come into West Philly and, and, you know, my mom would make some food and we'd hang out and, you know, and play some music in the basement. And, and they'd be like, wow, you know, we thought we would get, we go into, into the hood and then, and we're going to get shot. And it's like, well, no, it's like, they're like, Hey, come on in. Let's make some, let's party. You know, it's, it's, a, it's so, the other way around and it's amazing how it's portrayed the opposite you know mm-hmm. do you know what I mean that, they, that you that yeah. white people shouldn't come into the black neighborhood I was going to yeah. ask yeah. whether you yeah. could ever have friends over because you obviously had to keep certain things secret. Yeah, only about three three friends my high school prom guy Doug Rooney who was who was my who was a guitar player my friend Sean, they would, uh, my, the, and I, even at high school, I, there was, you know, it's interesting that there was the, the black kids. There was only, f- I think it was like 40 black kids out of 1,100 students. Wow. And they made sure we were never in the same class. I never had a class where there was another black person in. Really? It was very, and they were very racist, even at the school, the principals, the vice principals. They would make snide remarks, some of the teachers you know, and I think they knew by like the second or third year, they knew I wasn't really there, but they, you know, they couldn't nail me really, but they would sometimes make sort of, you know, make me feel uncomfortable in class. And so it was, it was not easy. It was not easy, but I was determined because I was like, you know what, you fuckers have all the good shit and it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. Every school should have those things. Yeah. Did you feel school. more racism from the teachers or did you feel it from your peers as well? Oh, both. Mm-hmm. the classic uh schools thing where you have you know I first arrived and all of a sudden I met all these really cool girls and they were like really good friends you know it's like one of those American movies and then they set you up for something and then they then they you know it's like oh. a, like the mean girls or what what are those oh, really? yeah. you yeah. know there's those clicky girls who oh. and then they take you in their group and I was like wow wow see everybody's really nice here I was always totally gullible on the first uh, time at the school. And then, you know, with some party or something, they, they, you know, they totally stitched me up with some, I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was some horrible prank and I thought, Oh, great. So So you had to be quite tough 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you do. Yeah. And and it's weird because I'm not, I'm not, and I'm really not a confrontational person. I'm quite, I'm quite, um, I shy, I'm, I have an issue with that. I have a hard time speaking up or, you know, trying to be assertive and, 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 but I, you know, I want, I think it's because I really wanted what I wanted, which was to, to create, which was to make music, to make art. And that was always at the forefront of my mind, which is why, you know, the subject of art and education or whatever comes to mind, because I think, I think everybody has that inkling to that. I mean, everyone is a creator, everyone, you, me, everyone has the ability to use their imagination and, and, and make things. And it's, it's, it's cathartic. And it's, it's just, to me, it's like part of breathing and, and eating and, and, and sleeping and everything. It's, it's something that we do. And I think it should be nurtured in the, at, at the early stages of life, the opportunities for people to, to open up that part of them should be a huge priority. In my world, it would be like a big priority, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, because, because I think that's it could create so many nice things if people are, are fulfilling that side of them. And yeah. I think some of the people that are walking around shooting everybody are cut off from that. They'd have yeah. to. Be. They'd have to be. Yeah. So can we can we go to your like first moment of picking up a bass at fourteen? So I think you could already play. You were in bands and you could play guitar and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, playing guitar. So what, what happened? What happened with your connection with the bass, particularly, and 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 can you tell us like where it took you? What were the absolute highlights? Ha- what have been the highlights of your career so far? Which is oh, like, far from over, but taking a oh, hiatus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My oh my god, the bass has been amazing. I well, you know, I never I never thought about being a bass player. I just didn't, and I was guitar is still my favorite instrument and it was that was always my dream to be the next you know whatever to be the next Eric Clapton or whatever I I love the guitar um but I like many bass players that I've spoken to now in, over the years a lot of us fell into it because no one else wanted to play it <laughs> yeah it was one of, at that time it was one of those instruments now it's like the coolest instrument in the world I, i'm noticing like especially with being able to see so many things on internet and facebook or, and all those the, the scrolling things or whatever they are uh you see so many people like women kids everybody's got a bass because it's cool girls look cool I, during I discovered it was cool as hell like i now i know i know that you know i discovered it you know by the time i was about 20 at that point but <laughs> And I was like, okay, this was, this is where I should have been. <laughs> what was I thinking? But um, I I picked it up at fourteen to get a job. To get oh, a job. really? The only reason I had a, a I I wanted to work in the, in the in uh, summer break at school. So I was you know I was, it was only like seventh grade. So I was quite young, obviously fourteen. And I wanted to um I could already play guitar. I thought kind of well enough to maybe get some work in the sun, like someone would hire me for a band that actually made money because I, I didn't know any bands that made money at that point. I just knew that I played with the kids across the street and some people from school and it was just, we just get together for fun. But I, you know, my mother was like, you're 14, you might need to get a summer job, you know, something to make a little extra money. And I thought, well, I don't want to do anything but play music. <laughs> so how can I, so I, I, I went to the local music store at the time, they used to have a bulletin board with three by five cards, index cards, which now we <laughs> we don't have anything at all like that. Um, and so, and you just go and look on the board, and and it was all just ba- people who were posting um, job like top forty band or band for a corporate party or something, you know, something that were you know making mo- bands that were making money or bands that weren't making money, but. And there was one that said, top 40 band seeks bass player. Everybody was a guitar player. Most of the cards said, guitarist seeks basses. Guitarist seeks drummer. Guitarist seeks... Everybody played the freaking guitar. And I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to... No one's going to hire me. And I'm sure they play better than me. So uh, I, bass was just the next best thing because I knew that I could... It had less strings. Um, I was already playing with a little trio with a couple of boys across the street from me. So there was a, a guy, a boy that played drums and one that played, played bass, and we rehearsed in my mother's basement. So they would leave their stuff there. 
sometimes just hanging out at the house. So when they'd go home, I would go downstairs in the evening and I'd play a little bit of drums and I'd pick up Ricky's bass. And so I knew I could play the bass, but I just didn't want to be a bass player. And so I said to my mother, I'm going to go on this audition for a, a, a bass player. And I, I don't know who it is, but the phone number is in our neighborhood. You know, back in the day, we used to have these phone numbers that you yeah. could tell which area it was. <clears throat> and, and it said, you know, top 40 band, Rolling Stones, Bowie, Queen, uh, you know, with top 40, uh, stuff like that. Things that I liked, things I was listening to. I was like, oh, Rolling Stones, yeah, awesome. I can play that, you know. Um, and I went to the audition, and it was in the neighborhood. It was not far from my house. It was another black guy, but he was like a total, like, rock guy, rock punk, like, amazing guitar player. His name was Jay Medley. Uh, he's, uh, he passed away recently, so terrible. And we've been friends ever since I, was, I met him that day. He gave me the job, and we worked that summer. And he gave me my first job as a bass player. I said to my mother, if I get the job, can you get me a bass? And she was like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Because she, she was like, whatever. You, you're going to be working at McDonald's, I'm sure of it. You know? And I, I borrowed a bass from my older sister's best friend's boyfriend. He had a nice bass, like a Rickenbacker, a real proper bass. Mm. I went to the, and I went with my best friend's sister, uh, my sister's best friend, um, to the audition because my mother said, you can't go on your own, which, I didn't, which was true. I wouldn't want to go to a stranger's house at 14. Mm. And I not know. So she was she was eighteen, I think, or twenty at the time. And I I do uh, Jay always used to laugh about the story when I turned up to the house and I had I was carrying I had the giant bass case, you know, probably bigger than me. And there was Betty who was half black and half Japanese. Her she lived down the street from us. Her her father was black and her mother was Japanese. So she was quite exotic looking. You know, she was very interesting. Um, beautiful woman and and jay thought that she was the bass player <laughs> and he was and he was her age so he was really excited <laughs> and then i got down to the his basement where we were doing the audition and then i picked up the bass and he was like oh no <laughs> that is a brilliant story isn't it funny that he was living near you all this time yes yeah he was he's like i was uh, i lived on a street called 61st street 61st between Race and Vine in Philadelphia. And he lived on 61st and Locust, which was about eight blocks up the street. All wow. that time. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't wander around. You don't wander around the neighborhood too mm. much. Kind of stay. Our, neighbor, our, our neighborhoods were very, very close-knit. You knew everybody within your sort of two or three-block radius. And, you know, you spoke to everybody. And, hello, Mrs. So-and-so. And everybody was very polite. And we had a block club. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't... Mm people imagine it is that's the thing you know I think a lot of times the sort of the black neighborhoods in the U.S. are, are blown out of proportion to seem seem like they're just like this horrible place yeah. at that time they really weren't they might be now I don't know so um, how was the audition what did he ask you to do uh, well I, I don't remember exactly but I know I, I had to play um some songs that were on the radio and I, I I don't for some reason I distinctly remember playing Elvin Bishop's song Fooled Around and Fell in Love I don't know if you know this song it was a really big hit at the time so it was one of the songs that we would have played in the, in the, in the show and I sang it I don't, oh I know I also we also had to play Boston more than a that was number one at the time so we did that at, in the show um we, we played Suffragette City Amazing. <laughs> not, at, not at the audition but we did that was part of one of the songs that we used to do <laughs> um and I remember when I got the job with Bowie it was a few years in because at first he, I know that when I first started working with Bowie he was like we're not playing any of the hits I'm tired of all that and I'm bored but he didn't want to do all the the things he had always been doing so the first period of, of first few years of working with David we were doing more alternative stuff. We're doing the drum and bass stuff on Earthling and outside album and stuff that was a little bit more um, esoteric and awesome. <laughs> and how did you go from Jay Medley's basement to working with David Bowie? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, with great uh, perseverance and, and just, I don't know. I, 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 you know, sometimes I don't even know. It's like I, I think about it now and I'm like, gosh, 
a lot of it was being in the right place, I think, at the right time for things for me. Um, and the main thing, I think, the real answer to that question, I, I would say, is by um, by believing there was absolutely no other alternative. Not to be with David Bowie, but not. But there was no way I could. I was going to live in the world without being a, a musician, like a, or an artist in some form. But uh, like, and I just would not let go of that. And without with that, it meant whatever. Uh, whatever decisions I had to make, whatever sacrifices, which there are many, um, or I will, it's not regret, but a sacrifice. You know what I mean? Like, mm. like I'm not going to have kids. Uh, I'm not going to allow a relationship to stop me from moving if I need to move. Like things like that. I just knew that. I was like, the, all my energy and attention must go to succeeding and uh, to, to be able to survive in the world playing music, which I believe is a God-given gift to me because I don't know how I do it. You know, I mean, I've learned things, but it's like a lot of my talent or whatever it is comes, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I've never had music lessons, like other than in school, like on the clarinet, that's, that's not really, but you know, that's not something I go to, to use today when I'm working on music. In fact, I can't even remember a little, how, how to read the music so well. Was there ever a point in your career where your confidence was, shake, was shaken and you thought, I can't do this? Um, well, no, no. Not that I can't do it, but I've had, my confidence was shaken at my ability on certain jobs, but it was never shaken to think that I can't do it, that I'm not going to get better at this. Can you give us an example? Like, um, like, like getting the job with Bowie, which he just called out of the blue. And, and in my mind, um, I never, it wasn't like an artist that I was on my list. Like I must work with, I was, you know, I think Louise Goffin, a good friend of mine, uh, daughter of Carol King, first daughter of Carol King and Jerry Goffin. She was my buddy in London. She was there at the same Mm. time. And we, we were, we were the sort of, you know, expatriate, you know, kind of hanging out, making music. We had a band. But Louise says that she remembers me telling her that I wanted to work with David Bowie. But I, I don't remember that, but I probably did. But but who wouldn't? Yeah, right. But in, my, <laughs> but, in my, <laughs> but in my mind, he was one of those people, like, um, it's like that he, he was one of those artists that has a, a, a special thing attached to the people who play with him. Not all art, Not all solo artists have that. Frank Zappa is another one. You know, like if you're in Zappa's, if you come out of Frank Zappa's band, like you must be hot. You must, you're the shit. If you played for David Bowie, like you, you know, you're, wow. You know, I never thought I was in that realm. I knew I could, I was capable and I was getting work and I could do things and I was always getting better. But I just thought I'm not going to be that level. That That's a whole nother, you know. And how was it when you started? Was it difficult? Well, that was that was what I mean. That was when I felt like, oh my god, I I don't. When I walked into the first day of rehearsal, I was terrified, and I thought, I, I hope I make like this is probably going to be the first thing I ever get fired from, or maybe he's going to. Why did he call me? You know, I had all these things in my head, and and then I'm there with Carlos Alomar, who was one of those enigmas. You know, those names on those Bowie records. You think that's that's the Carlos Alomar who's playing guitar on fame and, you know, all these things. And then Reeves Gabrett, like all the other musicians, Mike Garson, it was like this level of musicians that was beyond. And I was like, how do I fit in this? Am I going to make it? I, I don't know that I can make it. So that was, that was a big moment. The, the saving grace of that is the man himself who was incredibly gracious. He knew I was nervous he was always in good humor. He made you laugh. He made me feel comfortable. Uh, he never got weird with me about, you know, sometimes, you know, people can get weird. They can, you know, artists get have a bad day or they or they're temperamental or they want a certain thing or and they can kind of, you know, take out their own insecurities sometime on, on, on other people around them, like we all do. 
Um, I'm not, I'm guilty of that myself. I'm not excluding myself from, <laughs> from my faults, <laughs> but he was, he made it, he made me, um, just relax. And, uh, and then I just was, I just went, I, I was like, this is the job at hand. Okay. Here it is. Okay. That's challenging. Okay. Let me work a little harder on teenage wildlife or like some of the songs were like, wow. Cause I wasn't a huge Bowie fan uh, in that I knew the catalog. He wasn't, I didn't have his posters on my walls. Queen was my band. I was a queen fanatic. So oh, queen of Freddie Mercury. Oh my God. Best band on, on that. Mm-hmm. So I, I read that um, David challenged you to, uh, in, to, he gave you two weeks to learn how to sing the vocal to Under Pressure right. and play the bass line. That's right. Um, and he, 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 you said, I can't do it, I can't do it. And he said, just figure it out. He just went, I'll give you two weeks. And he walked yeah. out of the room <laughs> so, with a little so smile on his face. So that was, that goes to show he had, he, he had an uncanny, um, he had, a, he had many, he's like, he had more than six senses. I think this guy was like, he definitely was from another planet in some ways. Mm-hmm. Talk about someone being open to their creative channel. You couldn't be more. He was the, the ultimate conduit for that. So he challenged you and had confidence that you knew, you know, he knew you would be able to nail it. Exactly. But he kind of can see, I think he could see stuff in musicians. I think that was one of his biggest gifts that he could actually see not only, he, he could see for himself what people he needed, what kind of person he needed to create, to fulfill his creative um, idea. Like he knew exactly the person who would play the right way or have the right sound. He knew which artists would do just the right, you know, set, set design or like he to 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 make his like to bring his imagination to life, and that's a skill in itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know. So I I feel like that was one of his strongest. What I observed in my years of working for him, that was one of his strongest strongest skills was putting together the right people. To, to who then because he didn't give you a lot of instruction you know it wasn't like it wasn't um you know like play this and do that and uh, you know you kind of get a prompt you know a little something thrown out or he had a little bit of an idea but but I but as time went on I could see in his head that he still he knew what that idea was going to sound like when it was finished but he just kind of would throw like a little seed out and and the rest of the people in the band or whoever was working on any of the projects from the from the lighting all the way through just knew they just did what they did and it and then it turned out Bowie you know what I mean like he <laughs> and and so he left us to our own personalities and devices and and let us use our own imagination to see how we could fulfill his little mission in a sense mm. Was there anything about him that surprised you or anything about his process that you weren't expecting or, and that you enjoyed or that, or that you didn't enjoy and that you can dish the dirt on? <laughs> um, no, I have to say I enjoyed everything about working. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not hardly anything I didn't enjoy. It was such a thrill to go to work every day. Um, he, well, he was funny. I didn't think of him, you know, I never thought of him as being um <clears throat> weird or anything because I think people get that you know he his whole all his different characters and personas over the years and you know wearing dresses and all the different things he did way before anybody else did them um but he was a funny guy like I never imagined him quite he was humorous he had a real he had that real British humor and um and he just he was funny <laughs> and that kind of surprised me how how how, how funny he was. It gets and, you a long way as well, being funny. Do you know what I mean? It brings yeah. people along with you. Yeah. Well, exactly. And and also how how gracious he was. And the only times I ever saw him, you know, be, you know, sort of like, okay, I'm a star, get away, fuck off, you know, like that was mm. on a rare occasion. And it would be a day he's just having a bad day. Like you know, something was going on or he just was tired or he didn't want to be bothered. And then, and, but it took a lot for that to come out a lot. Right. I mean, I wasn't around him 24 hours a day, but all most of the time I spent with him, if people came in, even if I brought my family in or after a show or someone wants to meet you or get an auto, he was always kind and gracious and respectful of anyone at all times. And I thought that's pretty, that says a lot, you know, yeah. that says a lot. It really does. That help, that does actually bring me on to the next 
um, question because you said your third way that you would change the world is make time for meditation. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I just wonder whether the stress of touring and, you know, how did you manage to relax and wind down? Because it must have been really full on. And why would you make meditation a part of our everyday lives? Well, I think of that now because I feel like uh, meditation, I feel like there should be like a mandatory amount of time that the entire world, each, you know, this is definitely like a a science fiction dream or whatever, but (laughs) that everyone should take a certain, there'd be a certain time of day when the whole world just stops what they're doing and just is still. And the only reason I say it now, I mean, um, for me, my med- I'm not like a Buddhist or anything, and if I were interested in being any religion, it would probably be that. And I do read about it, and I do, you know, I try and practice a little bit sometimes, not as much as I should, like in terms of meditating or being still, doing yoga, taking care of my body, et cetera, uh, eating well, very important. But, I mean... My meditation is being on stage, a hundred percent. Like I, you know, I can sit forever with my thoughts like everybody else when you meditate, they never go away. You sort of try and just bring yourself back to where you are, just sitting where you are in your space and being aware of where you are and what's around you, aware of your body, what's happening in your body. But when I'm on stage, when I get the opportunity to go on stage for 30 minutes, two hours, three hours, an hour and a half, however long that performance is, I, to me, that is the moment when I am completely meditating. That is my meditation. I'm engaged in channeling that music and nothing else is in my brain. And I feel free and I feel refueled and alive and that's when I feel alive like that. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, which is why I I think I've spent more of my time as a touring artist. I'm not, I haven't done a ton of records with people. Some, some musicians love to be in the studio all the time. I enjoy that. um, But I would much rather be doing a concert every night because that's Mm. the moment I get to be free. So Mm. it must've been pretty difficult for you the last year. Oh, it's been horrific. It's been the worst year, one of the worst years of my life. I never imagined that I would not be able to do that because I feel like I'm I'm not getting my time, which was which is why I thought of the meditation because this is what I've been going to to try and get through all this is trying to just make sure I'm still for a few minutes every day and just breathe and 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 try and get energy from the world, from nature. I've got little squirrels and birds in my backyard here, and it's like they've kept me going. I mean, really, it's like I sit and I focus on them and I feed them peanuts and I watch them eat. (laughs) You never get stage fright, does it? Do you never get that paralysis that some people have? Not paralysis, but I'm always nervous before a show. Mm. People say, oh, how can you be nervous? I'm like, I don't care what it is, how many times I've done it. Like the first, you know, 20 minutes before those lights go down, my stomach's like, oh, my God. Because, you know, and then it just takes the first note like the first bomb downbeat and the lights go up and then I'm in that zone. Mm. And it's like, I'm in a, I'm not, I'm in another world. And I, I feel I'm doing what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing, which is creating something, <laughs> you know, it goes all the way back to that again. You know, it's like, it's, it's such a liberating feeling. And it's, that's, that's my energy and my fuel and my positive, like everything is, is wrapped up in the, in making that music happen and listening to the other players and, and the response of the audience and seeing the faces and feeling, you know, the, the connection between my fingers, you know, sometimes I'm thinking here are my fingers on these strings. As I do this note, this sound comes out and that sound is making those people dance and move and jump and you know it's like wow (laughs) what an incredible connection to to humanity that's why music is important you know whether i'm playing or listening it's a it's a communication that we mustn't lose especially in a a live sense i mean zooming and whatever is fine but it's not the same yeah i totally agree this cannot be a substitute there is no substitute for that so um it sounds like you're, you know, you've got your Zen sorted, uh, but have you ever had a real like fangirl moment? I remember I met, I met Clem Burke once backstage after a Blondie mm. gig mm. and I made complete 
<laughs> I, I was introduced to him and he put his arm around me for a photo in and I just basically wouldn't let go of him and he was so kind <laughs> and I just I, I just didn't want to let go and I realized it was inappropriate but anyway have you ever um have you ever had moments possibly not like that where you're physically assaulting someone but um <laughs> where you fangled um at someone because they you just you know your, uh, your work is taking you to somewhere you never thought you'd get to um I had a moment once with Michael Hutchins from In Excess. Oh, I wouldn't. I just felt <laughs> he was the sexiest guy oh ever. Like he, to me, he was the new Mick Jagger. He was like a, 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 a he, he, he was just so. Oh mm. God, God, I've seen In Excess, and my God, he was yeah. like sex on legs on the stage. He was sexy, right? Um, yeah. You know, and I'm bi. Like I'm, I'm pretty much more the other way, but not for him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was, I if anyone's like, going to take you to the other team yeah michael would have a problem but god rest him you know god it broke my heart oh my heart when he left but i had a moment with him funny enough i was i you know i worked on um i worked with andy gill from gang of four who another one who's left us way too soon mm. um andy and he uh, andy and michael were good friends and andy was producing a solo record for michael when michael passed away and I was meant to play on that record. Michael was a fan of mine, which was which freaked me out. Because one day I was doing a festival with Bowie. Some, I don't even remember where it was, but I remember that sort of like summer European festival with the tents in the back and all the sort of muddy walkways and whatnot. And Michael Hutchins was there. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, Michael Hutchins is, I guess, in excess of playing. Or maybe he was hanging out. I don't, I can't remember why he was there. And at one point, I was speaking. I can't. I was out standing outside the dressing room tent, and I was speaking with Michael Hutchins, and he was telling me about this solo record with Andy, and he was like, "I would love you to play on it and everything." And, wow. and Bowie comes out. Like Bowie comes out of the dressing room, and I'm talking to Michael Hutchins. <laughs> and, it's like a dream. It was like- a dream. This is this, this. So this is my geek. This was my moment. Like even though I never, I didn't really fancy Bowie, or whatever, but this was hilarious because. <laughs> Uh, we we the, I'm standing there and there's Bowie on one side and Michael Hutchins on the other and I remember like standing and we're all kind of you know they were talking and I'm standing and I'm like this I'm like this can't be happening and then Michael says oh I was just talking to Gail about playing on my my solo record and then I remember David taking my arm like one arm and he was like oh no you don't you're not taking my Gail. <laughs> And then Michael sort of taking the other arm and he was like, well, she can make up her own. And I've had two guys and I was freaking out. It's like a cross between an anxiety dream and a sex dream. I don't oh, know. Exactly. It was literally just the best dream ever. It was. It was. I, and, I, and I have to say, my memory isn't so great with a lot of details, but I will never forget that. I, I bet. I remember like going like to my hotel or whatever later going, I had Michael Hutchins and David Bowie like, fighting over me and <laughs> oh my God. You know, so many people are going to be listening to this thinking did you get a selfie <laughs> oh that was before selfies right can you imagine now you can even yeah. own a cell phone then yeah this was would have been like 90 gosh 90 i don't know 97 or something like that what an incredible memory absolutely yeah yeah well, you've made us all really want to go to a gig now. And what are your future plans? Are you going to be back in the studio? Are you aiming to go gonna, back on the road? Well, I'm going to start working on some new material and I'm going to start releasing one at a time because I've been saying I'm going to do a new album forever. And, and it just, it's just the practic- like practically getting all that together, especially now, is just too much to think of. But it's not too much to think of doing one thing at a time. You know, that's why I'm mm. trying to just with everything right now, with the uncertainty of everything, it's just one day at a time. What can I do today? What's in front of me? And what what I really want, I do have goals. And my goal is to actually get an album's worth of material together, at least by the end of the year. But I'm going to start working on some recording some new songs now for, for myself. I think eventually I'm going to be in Paris most of the time. That is my okay. goal. I'm How's your French? Getting better. <laughs> getting good, better, but not good enough yet. You can never be good enough for the French, can you? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I'm not getting into that, but you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> what is your favorite thing to do in Paris, Gail, when you're there? Um, to, to, to do the cliche thing, to sit in a really nice cafe 
outside on a nice day and take your time and maybe jot a little journaling um, to eat some nice food mm. uh, and to walk on a nice day. I love walking through Paris. That's a lovely place to picture you for the end of this podcast. Thank you yeah. so much. You're very welcome. It's You're been so a pleasure welcome. talking to you. It likewise. has been a total pleasure, yeah. Likewise, likewise. Thank you so much for listening to The World As It Should Be. We hope it inspires you to work towards shaping the world as you think it should be. You can find out more about Prima Donna Festival by going to primadonnafestival.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. We're on Spotify too and all good platforms. The World As It Should Be from Prima Donna. as it should be from Prima Donna.